Welcome to Series 2 of Finding Home, a podcast series about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. This podcast is presented by the Irish American Archive Society of Cleveland, Ohio. Series 2 features interviews of Clevelanders talking about an array of topics relating to the history of the Irish in our city. Please excuse any variation in audio quality as these interviews have been conducted over the phone and over Zoom. Support for Series 2 of Finding Home comes from the Michael Talty and Helen Talty Charitable Trust. Thanks so much for listening, and please enjoy. Greetings, everyone. It's Margaret Lynch of the Irish American Archives Society of Cleveland, and I'm here today speaking with Father Ryan Duns, SJ. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Glad to have you. Thank you so much, Margaret. It's good to be with you. Right. I've known you since you were a young person. So I cannot call you Father Ryan or Father Duns with any regularity. So uh, it's going to be Ryan for the podcast. No disrespect, if that's okay. No disrespect at all. I'm glad to be just (laughs) Ryan. I'm used to that name. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yes. You've had it for a long time, haven't you? (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Ryan, you're a musician and a priest, or we could say you're a priest and a musician. And it's sort of which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which one do you remember wanting to do earliest? Or, you know, what order did they come to you in, in your life? You know, to be honest with you, I think it's a great question. I It's something I think about a lot. I Definitely music first. Mm-hmm. I've played, you know, I'm 42. I'll be 43 in October. And I've played not Irish possible, music. Since. Not possible. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's Margaret. I don't think we can. We're getting old. But we. Who is this? We. we <laughs> anyway. I, you know, I played Irish music my really all my my life since around the age of seven and a half, eight eight years old, mm-hmm. starting with Tom Hastings on the west side of Cleveland in Fairview, and those are the days. Lessons were thirty minutes a week for three dollars a lesson. My brother and I started taking lessons together. And this was at the Irish Music Academy of Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken. This is even before Irish Music Academy. Before that. Okay. Because I interviewed Rita Lally about the Irish Music Academy. But yeah, Tom worked with Rita. Rita and Tom and Melissa Barrett all lived down the street from one another. Okay. You know, in Fairview. And Tom taught out of his house at the beginning. And then later, probably when I was 13, so about five or six years after I was playing. The Irish Music Academy came into existence, mm-hmm. but you know my sis, my siblings were all Irish dancers, and I uh, correct. Just, and I was going to ask you if you started music as a way of avoiding dancing. <laughs> I, well, it was more. <laughs> it was it was more. My parents had me start music as a way of avoiding me from wanting to do Irish dancing, because I'm physically t- I have very poor coordination skills. And <laughs> as I like to tell the story um, on my ordination night, someone asked my mother. You know, with all these Irish dancers in the families, cousins and everybody else did Ryan dance. My mother smiled and said, no, we spared ourselves that indignity. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, no, I never, I never danced. I mean, I can, I know enough, you know, Wait a minute. Stuff. not even, not even a lesson or two, not even a, like, uh, this is sevens with Tessie. <laughs> Tessie Maura Burke. Manning, God love her. Maura tried to teach me at the, at, at the Ohio Irish Festival and I broke Judy Bunsey McCafferty's toe on my ordination night by waltzing with her. So yeah, I I just oh, it's safer if oh, I just said. Oh Ryan, okay, all right, okay. So your parents made the right decision and, and set you on the course of was Tin Whistle your first instrument or? 
tin whistle and then you fulfilling the the dreams of every 10 year old boy i got an accordion whoa how did you <laughs> wait a minute the dreams was that because tom was also an accordion player because <laughs> tom could teach it and mm-hmm. i loved the music at the fesh mm-hmm and I remember very distinctly Marty Kilroy playing. I mean, this is when the Akron Fesh was all outdoors under under umbrellas and tents. Right, yeah. And I remember hearing him play hornpipes. I knew it was a hornpipe. Mm-hmm. And then Tom taught me the Boys of Blue Hill. And I thought, oh, that is the tune that Marty, like it was. Wait a minute, you recognize that. And how I old knew were it. you? You were less than 10 years old at this time? I was probably nine or 10. And that's when I thought this, this, it it was like my moment at the well, like Uh Helen Keller, when the world opened up, I'm like, I'm learning to do what they're doing and kids are dancing to it. And I like all of this. Oh my gosh. You know, Tom Hastings, um, I wanted to take dancing when I was a little kid because I saw Tom Hastings doing King of the Fairies, a hornpipe set at a dance at the West Side IA. And the haunting music just yeah. really captured me. And it all sort of happened that Father Flynn was an assistant at our parish at the time, great friend of Tessie Burke's, and got us all involved in dancing anyway. But yes, Tom Hastings, <laughs> great inspiration for many of us. <laughs> yeah, he's one of those figures, you, mm-hmm. you know, like one of those unsung heroes that's in the background mm-hmm. of so many of us. Mm-hmm. But not so much for you. I mean, he was, you know, he was your teacher. You know, This may anticipate future questioning, but about the priesthood thing, I went to St. Ignatius. I went to St. Brendan's for for grade school, then St. Ignatius, Mm -hmm. Canisius College, John Carroll for a master's, and then the Jesuits. Mm -hmm. But what attracted me, I mean, if if my first, my love of Irish music and and Irish dancing music, especially, I loved what I saw as almost, I I can see now as the vocation of a fashion musician, Mm-hmm. which is to be on the side of the stage and you're playing so that other people can do what they're meant to do. Mm-hmm. And I look at the people in Cleveland, it's people like like Rita, Marilyn Madigan, Jim McGurk, Mary Kay Coop, you know, Tom Hastings, Tom Byrne, Tom McCaffrey, you, I mean, mm-hmm. doing the plays when we were, when I was in high school, you who set it up so that people could step forward and do what they were meant to do to have an encounter with something bigger and richer and and Mm -hmm. be part of that tradition. And I think growing up with such good role models of people who had the self-confidence that they didn't have to be at the center of the stage and step back made my understanding of priesthood one that I could embrace. So I pray as I play, I'd like to think. Wow. A good priest is not calling attention to himself alone. I mean, there's a level of having to mediate an encounter, but you're mediating an encounter with the tradition and the one who is the tradition. Mm-hmm. Not and, with yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's not about me. I mean, you use mm-hmm. your gifts and talents to, to mm-hmm. bring people in to be hospitable, but it's like music. You're only succeeding if people are dancing. Wow. So the service element of priesthood and the service element of being a, a fesh or a dance musician, there was a sort of a, a synergy between the two of them in your mind, heart, soul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I find the two of them, the, the, the mode of integration. That's how I've, mm-hmm. they're not what I do. It's, it is just who I am. 
Wow. So you realized pretty young that you specifically liked to play for dancers, which is not the path of every musician by any means, but just to make so that people understand, traditional Irish dancing has developed a structure with competitions at the heart of that structure. And there are competitions held across the world, really. I was going to say the U.S., but on almost a weekly basis somewhere, sometime, someplace, there's a, a dancing competition, which is called a fesh. And these are performed, of course, the dancers are live, but live music is a big part of the tradition. And there have evolved people that are really focused on playing at competitions in support of dancers and timing, regularity are all important part of that, right? (laughs) You can't go off in flights of fancy or add some embellishments here or there, you know, that get in the way of the rhythm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's times on a good day, you find the relationship with the dancer and you say, this is what it's supposed to be like. And then there are other times you think you are clearly hearing impaired or you do not care that I am sitting over here. (laughs) Timing is a super important part of dancing and music. And not everyone has an innate sense of it. It's very difficult to teach. Very, very difficult to teach if you don't have it innately. So um, it's it's the downfall of many a would-be dancer (laughs) and possibly musician as well, I'm sure. Yes, yes, very much. (laughs) When did you have the confidence, you know, so you're, you're 10 or 11 years old, you think, huh, and all your siblings are doing dancing. So, you know, you understand that relationship. But when did you have the confidence And when did others around you feel that you were ready to actually play while people were actually dancing? Yeah, you know, this is one of those other great unsung people anymore, uh, Sean Anthony Boland. Mm -hmm. He ran the Cleveland Fesh, Mm -hmm. was very aggressive in recruiting young musicians. Oh, okay. And, And he was part, it's all part of the same impulse to start the Irish Music Academy to bring young people up into it. Yeah, there was a a real prophetic vision that they saw the need to keep this tradition alive Mm -hmm. and a real resistance to wanting to to go to canned or, you know, CD music. Right. And I'm grateful that they did that. And so Riverdance debuts in 1995. For the last 25 years, we've been talking about the Riverdance surge. Mm -hmm. Right. Riverdance Mm -hmm. and then Lord of the Dance. Irish dancing became, I mean, I remember, Margaret, surely you remember with the girls, the early dance outs in the nineties and you brought the boom box and the tapes and, you know, it was something nice you did sure for did. a couple, <laughs> yeah, couple right. weeks in, mm-hmm. in, in March. Mm-hmm. And then it got kicked up to this whole other level. So it just so happened that there I am 18, 19, 20 Irish dancing has exploded in popularity. Mm-hmm. There are all of these Irish dancing competitions and here I am college kid who can play the accordion and likes to play for Irish dancers, Mm -hmm. I was suddenly quite, I had jobs. Mm -hmm. Right. So you didn't play for fetishes while you were still in high school yet? Not really. Not not to the degree that I would in subsequent years. Yeah. Interesting point, because they could have gone to canned music. That'd be easier in so many ways, you know, but they did not and still have not. Yeah, there used to be a certain, you know, looking back at my own growing up years and my younger sisters, there were fashes every once in a while, but 
really, literally, we could have gone to a fesh almost every week by the time my two daughters were graduating, but they were very committed to it. So, <laughs> and we did not go to a fesh every week, but we could have. So where was your first, what first fesh did you play at? Cleveland would be my first mm-hmm. Memorial Day weekend. And then mm-hmm. pretty soon after Cleveland, Detroit, Buffalo, mm-hmm. Akron, yes. Columbus. So they're all sort Aiden, of on Cincinnati. the same circuit and they see that you're doing this. They're sending their students to dance at those competitions. They see that you can do it and you start getting invitations and traveling. And then at a certain point you step up to, you're allowed to play at major competitions, right? Yes. <laughs> when did that happen? That happened in, I believe, like 2002, and at the, the Columbus Arachnus, the, the Mid-American Qualifier, uh-huh. and it was that year, either someone backed out or couldn't, couldn't make it, so I was hired in November, just weeks before, and that was my, I did two that year, I did New England, and mm-hmm. I did Mid-America, mm-hmm. and since then, you know, I've been blessed, I mean, the Mid-American region is my home, but I've lived in the Mid-Atlantic, the New oh, England. For your studies. Um, meanwhile, we haven't gone back to the priesthood thread for a little while in this conversation yet. But in the meantime, yes. So 2002, you're probably still in college, though. I just graduated. Oh, okay. So you're in demand. You've been bumped up to the big leagues. You're doing well as a musician. You're a good student as well. Always have been. And when do you start thinking about seriously entering the priesthood? You know, I was at, I was at John Carroll. I was playing music uh, a lot. I mm-hmm. was able to do a master's degree and I enjoyed it. I had mm-hmm. great teachers, my undergraduate experience of the Jesuits, my high school experience of Jesuits. And, you know, at, at that point, you, when you're playing at a fesh for eight hours and you're playing lots of hornpipes and treble jigs and slip <laughs> jigs and reels. You have a lot of time to think. <laughs> and it, 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 there's something, it's, it's a blissful isolation. I uh-huh. mean, you're engaged with people, but there's an interiority that you can develop. And the idea of who do I really want to become mm-hmm. kept passing through my mind. And as much as I loved what I was doing, it really began to resonate in my heart that there was something more I was being called to and drawn to And I looked at the examples of my Jesuit professors and teachers and mentors and friends. And I said, yeah, that's the kind of life I want to live. Uh And I didn't have like a fall off the horse moment. It just sort of clicked. And I went on some retreats and had some conversations and decided to apply. And then Uh the vocation director at the time was Brother Jim Boynton, the first Jesuit I ever met, who had done his regency at... St. Ignatius in Cleveland mm-hmm. and was in the band Tap the Bow with Sarah Lally and Justin Gorski and John Cundiff. And I Tish did not Oath. know that. Yeah. So that was a band of people who were sort of coalescing around the Music Academy in Cleveland. And you were involved in that as well, weren't you, Ryan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was in the eighth grade and I was in a band, you know. It was... <laughs> right. <laughs> so by some strange mystery of the universe, this person who had been in your life when you were quite young, you intersect with again at a critical moment and kind yeah. of maybe gives you permission to think of yourself as both a musician and a priest. Jim's, I mean, great gift as an animator has never been lost on me. And I remember it was a Friday. I was going to Baltimore to play at a fashion and I was upgraded on Continental Airlines. And 
I wrote to Jim and I said, Hey, brother Boynton, this is, you know, Ryan and put in parentheses, little one, which is what he called me. Cause I was the youngest one in the group. In the tap the and, bow group. Okay. In tap the bow. And he, he wrote back really within 15 minutes and said, Oh, this is great. I'm going to be in Cleveland on Monday. And on Monday I, I, we met and I thought this, you know, there was the cynical side of me. It was like, all right, I'm going to meet with him. I'm going to get this off my chest and be done with it. And then I'll go on and do my career thing. And it didn't get off my chest. It mm-hmm. stayed deeper in my chest. And mm-hmm. we went from there. What would you have done? Like, what would the career have been? I, you know, it, it varies by day. I probably would have gone to medical school. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I a think lot that's of what nurses in your family, a lot of people in the medical profession. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. Um, I mean, the, there's elements of law that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Probably, I, I don't think I could have ever been just in business. No, <laughs> teaching perhaps, maybe, but mm-hmm. I think medicine because I wanted I wanted to be a priest for the same reason I want to be a doctor, which is to help people. Mm-hmm. Right, that's the through line. But teaching an important element, I think, was it significant that the Jesuits were a teaching order and an order of scholars? You have a a sort of scholarly thread that we haven't really touched on yet as well. Was that an important part of your consideration of the Jesuits specifically? It was to see them. I mean, the the great exposure, of course, was in the classroom and seeing how Mm -hmm. they interacted with people and then outside of the classroom and their humanity, Mm -hmm. I found deeply attractive. And and certainly, of course, Ignatian spirituality. Mm -hmm. And they let me and encouraged me to ask questions and to be creative, I deeply value my teacher's willingness, and I try to emulate a As freedom a teacher yourself, right? Yeah, to let people, you know, they've got to they've got to own the material for themselves, and knowing a lot about something and actually knowing it deep within and appropriating it, two very different things. Mm-hmm. And they let me do that. So I I'm probably more of an unconventional thinker, definitely an unconventional teacher. <laughs> Conventional person, right? Very, I think I kind of broke a lot of molds mm-hmm. and not, not intentionally, but I'm comfortable with that. And I want, mm-hmm. I try to encourage others, like just, just be yourself. And that's mm-hmm. be who you've been created to be mm-hmm. and you can become what you're meant to be. And it'll be great. <laughs> but we just have to sort of embrace that, embrace that within ourselves. Uh-huh. So the Jesuits offered you the broadest version of what that self could be that also incorporated being a priest. <laughs> right. It, yeah. As a way of life, it was, it was incredible. It was exciting. It's been consoling and challenging. I mean, I could, it's not, this is not the life any kid dreams of, you don't, or any normal kid, I guess, <laughs> but it's better than I could have dreamt. I mean, it, uh-huh. it so far exceeds my imagination. I mean, every day is busy. I'm the assistant chair of the department. I, so I run the schedules. I director of undergraduate studies. And I'm a priest. We should campus. stop and say where you are right now because I didn't do a very good job of contextualizing what you're doing right now. You're at Marquette University. So I, I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Marquette University. This is my Wednesday was I finished teaching. And it was so my fourth year here. I'm going up for tenure. Wow. Which is crazy to think. Uh-huh. But I, I've been very lucky. I managed to publish a book very early called Spiritual Exercises for a Secular Age that came out of my dissertation. Co-edited a book. I co-wrote a book that we've been teaching to our first-year students. 
and then a raft of articles and book chapters and book reviews and you know all the stuff you do on the tenure track as a professor right right being professorial and uh-huh, teach right. doctoral students in the theology department you have doctoral students ryan Yes, I have. I'm directing wow. one. I'm co-directing one. I will pick up, I think, a third fairly soon. In the last th- four weeks, I've done three doctoral qualifying examinations with students. Wow! Wow! Yesterday, we read chapter one of the of the the dissertation that I'm co-directing. Working with uh, undergraduate researchers, I'm in charge of the Jesuit Honors Society Alpha Sigma Nu which is why my voice is uh, a bit impeded today because we did a hot wings eating challenge with the university <laughs> presence and program. I might have seen a picture that you posted on Facebook of your facial reaction to the spiciness I, of those wings. <laughs> I'm not a poker face at all. <laughs> right. And it's obvious. Like, I, and I, I do not tolerate discomfort very well. <laughs> so you've got a very full life at Marquette um, with lots of different dimensions to it. Let's uh, backtrack for a second, though, to talk about how you got there. Entering the Jesuits is a very lengthy proposition. You don't become a Jesuit in four years or, you know, and you've done a lot of graduate work in lots of different ways and directions. Can you tell us a little bit about that scholarly journey? Sure. So after I took vows in 2006, I was sent to Fordham University, where I studied philosophy for three years. Following that, I lived in Detroit for three years. I taught at the University of Detroit Jesuit High School, Mm -hmm. and I taught philosophy, theology, Latin, ran student government. When I finished it in Detroit, I was sent to Boston College to do my theology studies. The summer before I left, I was with another Jesuit friend who kept telling me about this guy, Brian Robinette. He's like, Rye, you have got to meet this guy he was teaching at St. Louis University at the time. He's like, this guy's amazing. He's such a good teacher. You two are like twins. Uh-huh. I arrive at Boston College and who had just taken a job at BC but Brian Robinette. I sign up for, I take his class in the spring and it became clear on the first day that we were more than compatible. Like mm-hmm. we just, I think by personality, we just grew, we're on the same wavelength at uh-huh. all times, very relaxed. I'm more type A than he is, but just very like, hey, it's all good. We're going to have a good time. Let's have a laugh, uh-huh. do good work. And I was lucky. So as I studied theology, <laughs> living and working at Boston College, my provincial gave me permission to apply to the PhD program in a year early before ordination. So I applied to one doctoral program and then I started in 2014. So I was accepted at Boston College. I did a year of doctoral studies. I was ordained, did a second year of doctoral studies, took my comprehensive exams. And in 2017, I started to write my dissertation on metaphysics and of Irish metaphysician. He's from Cork, William Desmond. I worked on Desmond's thought as a form of spiritual exercise. Mm -hmm. And this is what became, this became your, your book, your book. Correct. Mm -hmm. And I started writing in July of 2017, July 14th, Bastille Day. And I finished on December 14th, 2017. That was quick. (laughs) I got to tell you. That was quick. But meanwhile, Mac, this is like eight years after he's made profession. So it wasn't really quick at all, but. (laughs) Exactly. I, I mean, like I definitely had a lot like going in the head, but. If nothing else, Irish music 
being a fashion musician, when you show up at an Irish dancing competition, you see a board mm-hmm. and there might be 60 competitions or eight big competitions. Mm-hmm. As a musician, you know, you are going to play for every single one of those mm-hmm. and you can drag it out and make the day go really long. Mm-hmm. Or you can just sit down and play it and it's going to be arduous and sometimes boring, but the sooner you sit down and get started, the sooner the day is going to be done. Mm-hmm. And that discipline of the fesh. You apply to your dissertation writing. It changed. I mean, it was the best thing I could have done. And uh-huh. I was so focused. Uh-huh. Then you came back to John Carroll for a little bit. Did you not? Or am I confusing your chronology? I did. I did for one year. So that was the 2017-2018 school year. The funny bit is that, like anyone, you anticipate it's going to take a year and a half, two years to write a dissertation. Mm -hmm. I was given two years to write the dissertation by the Jesuits. So I anticipated living at John Carroll. Uh And then I finished it in a semester. (laughs) And my provincial... Now, I knew that I've never written a dissertation before. Uh I've never gone... I've never done this. It was about October and my provincial at the time came in and said, you know, well, Ryan, how's, how's writing going? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm making progress. He goes, you know, where are you at? And he was expecting, oh, chapter one. He said, well, I just sent off chapter three. And he, he cocked his head and looked at me and said, well, how many chapters is it? I'm like, oh, it should be five. And then he goes, you need to get, you don't have a job. I said, yeah, I thought we'd talk about that. He's like, oh my God. So it threw everything off balance. By being so quick. You, yeah, no one gonna, expected it. Uh-huh. So my name hadn't gone out. The schools weren't aware of what I did or that I'd be available. Uh-huh. And so I interviewed in, I interviewed at John Carroll and two schools were very interested. Well, a couple other schools were interested, but the ones we decided were Marquette and Santa Clara. I interviewed at this, the, the same week. I went from Marquette. It was five degrees. It was in February. I came, spent the weekend, like Thursday, Milwaukee Friday. Milwaukee at its finest. I you know went how to Marquette goes. University, so I know. <laughs> it could have been February. It could have been May. Who knows? Yeah, um, right. It's one long slog. <laughs> oh, it was it was so cold. Mm-hmm. I did the interview, went to the airport. I flew to San Jose, and I'm like, this is not normal. And I'm taking every like I'm I'm taking off clothes in the airport. I get to Santa Clara, and it smells like oranges and roses. They're in t-shirts. They're on skateboards. I do a teach- I got a sunburn while I was there in what February. What should I do? The gray, oppressive, or the sunshine and lemons and oranges? Hmm. Yeah, my, I, obviously my ability to discern is terrible. Uh, because <laughs> I gave my, my teaching demonstration and the kids were, they seemed to be really into it. And it was on, of all things, it was on a Coleridge and Gerard Manley Hopkins and Tupac Shakur. And we were looking at poetry and how poetry works and the religious and theological implications. And I stopped at one moment. Wait a minute, talk about creativity. Talk about creativity. There is the creativity. (laughs) But I said, "Um, all right, I've got to ask a question, guys. Do you have a campus for the ugly people? Because I totally do not fit in here right now. This I am getting a sunburn just from the lights. This is bizarre. Well, they thought this was charming and cute. They offered me a job. I'm like, no, I have to go to Milwaukee because I I need like seasons and clouds. (laughs) Not everyone beautifully tanned and with their skateboard and et cetera. Yeah. 
Yeah, you, you went for the grit. You went for the uh, Rust Belt experience. I did. Yeah. I know right. where I'm from. I know who right. I am. Right. So meantime, so you're describing a very intensive, albeit speeded up, research process to prepare yourself to be a scholar and a teacher, a professor at a university. You've got all the machinery structure of the Jesuits around you, finding places to teach at, etc. Where does music fit in and did it have to take a back seat for a while as all this was going on? You know, I have to tell you, when I entered in 2004, I thought that was it. I thought, okay, that stage, it was fun while it lasted. I am so grateful to the Society of Jesus that mm-hmm. they not only allowed, but encouraged me to continue playing. So I have played all the way through my Jesuit formation. Mm-hmm. And writing the dissertation, my discipline was such that I were, I really wrote Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. But Friday afternoons, I played a lot of Feshina during the, the <laughs> Friday afternoon, year. you got on a plane so that you could be somewhere for a fesh that started on Saturday morning at 8 a.m., right? <laughs> yeah, and I would edit. I could edit my week's work on the plane. Wow. And so I would read and edit and stay engaged. Mm-hmm. And then on Sunday, I would read whatever piece of fiction I had at hand. Like, I didn't think about the project. <laughs> Sunday, the plane home was your fun day. Yeah, fun Sunday moment. fun. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I was lucky, you know, when I lived at Boston College, I lived up the hill from the, the Greenbrier, which hosted a session every Monday night. Oh, a music session, a traditional music yeah. session. Oh, wonderful. Okay. And it was one of those longstanding Boston traditions. So I would, yeah. I, I could walk to the session, play till midnight, mm-hmm. go home. I got to teach the tin whistle at Fordham. I'm going to try to restart that here at, at Marquette. Uh-huh. You also recorded some YouTube videos that went quote unquote viral. (laughs) Yeah. Tin whistle. Tell us about your tin whistle videos. How did they come about? In 2006, uh, I believe that's that's right around when YouTube opened up. I was a student at Fordham and they asked if I would teach a tin whistle class as part of Irish studies. I was happy to do it. But it occurred to me very quickly that there would not be sufficient time in any class for me to do the intensive demonstration or correction that I would need to do if I had, say, one student in front of me when you have mm-hmm. 12 or 20 or 30. Right, it's harder. because you had learned in a one-on-one situation. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm good at. T- I'm good at the one-on-one. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit harder with the big group, especially I can make a lot of progress very quickly one-on-one. It's, it's mm-hmm. just slower when you've got a big yeah. group. Right. And uh, so I had this idea like, oh, I'll record the lessons and put them on YouTube and the kids can watch them and check themselves against it. And that'll make my job easier. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to tell you, I, at the time, I just simply did not realize that when you put it on YouTube, anyone Anybody could, can see it, right? <laughs> and people did. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would record these videos. And then sometimes I would just record things for fun. And I've recorded consistently. So that's 16 years. I was a newly professed, so a baby, baby, like baby Jesuit. And it, you can go back and look at the timeline and you watch a in a way. You did these for 16 years? Yeah. I did not realize that. That is amazing. Like one a week or how often? Sometimes like I go through creative spurts and I'll, I'll do a couple of them. Um, it depends on, on the demand of the day and okay. my inspiration. But there's, in a weird way, you watch, you watch me grow up. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> you see me at... 
Fordham. You'll see me in Detroit. You'll see me in Boston. You'll see me in my other house in Boston. You'll see me in Cleveland. You'll see me in Milwaukee. You'll see me in Puerto Rico playing like <laughs> while I'm on vacation. Like, I don't know. You know, it, and this is Tin Whistle. So we could be talking about being a musician or being a priest, but there's the other fundamental question. Are you a Tin Whistle player or are you an accordion player? Uh, <laughs> it may be even more fundamental. That one... <laughs> I, you know, I think at the end of the day, I'm a tin whistle player. <laughs> the accordion is what I would be better known, for, obviously, because I, I play so often for Irish dancers. Right. And a tin whistle is not viewed as a, as a fashion instrument, a dance instrument. Accordion, fiddle, and piano are yeah. sort of like the, the main instruments for dance competition musicians. Exactly. So the accordion is what you do as your job as a fashion musician but uh the tin whistle is what you might pick up if you just feel like making music at in the evening Ab so like i'm standing at my desk and yeah. my desk drawer is the second one from the top is all tin whistles and it's like answering emails and saying i can't i just can't right now i'm gonna play some music and without the tin whistle <laughs> i can pull one out and my and the guys who live around me in the other rooms they know <laughs> like oh he's <laughs> Coming up for air. Are there different, you know, uh, there's different tin whistles that have different sounds if you're really into yeah. it, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, the tin whistles, I mean, there's different, not only are there different brands, but they're pitched differently. So you can That's play, what I was, I couldn't think of the word, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, E flat, you know, E flat or D or C, B, B flat, F. Yeah. And so I've got whistles and music books. And I mean, I do feel I, I have enough sense of obligation to my students. So when I want to go and learn new music, I often feel guilty anymore because I'm like, I should be reading this chapter of a dissertation. I should be grading these reflection essays or I should be, I, I do, I try to put them first, but the summer is <laughs> having coming. Said that. <laughs> having said that, having said that, I will, now that the summer is, is about to break in upon us, I can go back to playing some learning tunes and having more, having more me time. <laughs> It just strikes me that although you do love and, you know, have the vision of being a dance accompanist from a young age, that the tin whistle is actually more a place where you can express individual creativity better, right? Yeah. I think there's something lighthearted about the whistle. It doesn't have to carry the band, but a good whistle player... You know, Joni Madden would is, I mean, right. she's the anchor and she's a powerful flute player, but when she plays the whistle, it's dazzling. That's sort of what I, I mean, the, the accordion is a working instrument. Mm -hmm. The whistle, right. it's just, it can be beautiful. Right. And I, I think that's what I appreciate. Right. And this is going, bouncing around in time quite a bit. But when you were in high school, I asked you to be part of a project, which was to create music to accompany a play about the legendary Irish mythical hero, Finn McCool. And it was Tin Whistle that you used to create the accompaniment. You were just maybe freshman or sophomore in high school when you did this, but had the ability to create sort of a musical framework for this short children's play. But we had a dancer involved too, who was equally creative, Sinead Kimbrell. Yes who didn't do traditional steps, but did sort of percussive movement throughout to sort of emphasize and underscore the action. But 
you and she working together, and you're both high school students, had the creativity to do, to create this without a lot of direction or guidance. I mean, I just think I said, you know, sort of basically what what we were looking for. But <laughs> so you've had that creativity for a long time, Ryan. I, it's part and parcel of you. And that did you also create music for um, Crossroads Dancing? My I did. play? Yeah, right. So like anything, you, you know, you can't plan to be creative. No. <laughs> I look at that as that's the work of the Holy Spirit is it brings something out of you you didn't know was in there. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't arrive. You you can't snap your fingers and say, now create. Mm-hmm. But you have to be receptive to it and say, ah, oh, no, okay. So, well, let's try this out. And it's, you know, opening up a document, the, the word document and putting that first letter down and saying, okay, I'll commit to this. I don't know where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Being open to the universe. I think you've been open to the universe through your whole life, Ryan. It's really um, amazing. And and I was going to ask you how you balanced all these things, but you've been more or less telling us um, with a lot of discipline, for one. Yeah, I am lucky. I'm organized. Uh I'm an organized person. I think some people look at me and think like, oh, my God, like it's all over the place. But there's a method to it all, you know. Uh A friend of mine described me to a a colleague once and said, you know, with, with a credit card and a cell phone, you could run a small country. And that might be true. I can, I can multitask pretty well. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm an extrovert. I enjoy being with people and mm-hmm. getting to know them and hearing their stories. And I, mm-hmm. I find energy in that. Right. And that's why you sort of take on, you know, new things. You're the chaplain of the Ladies Ancient Order of Hibernians. You mentioned Marilyn Madigan earlier, and I'm sure that she she's the one who issued the invitation of the universe um, <laughs> to join in. <laughs> but it's all part of that sort of web of community that you're part of and help to create. Well, and you know, when you look at, when you, and I look back at like just Cleveland Irish, and again, bearing in mind that I've been privileged to live all over the place. We are the most interconnected people, I find. I find the Cleveland Irish to be spectacular in their, not just their, certainly their fidelity, to one another and to their religion in many cases, but just the way that they, their generosity toward everything that involves preserving their culture. And they just don't fixate on one thing. They, they sort of see it as all encompassing, a totalizing vision. And they're really good at, you know, showing up at events and supporting and inviting and creating a sense of broad community. And I love that. I, I deeply, deeply appreciate that about, because it's where we come from. And that's something I feel empowered, having seen it done, to go and do likewise. And even though you're not living in Cleveland, you're still part of it. I One of the iconic pictures of the 2017 St. Patrick's Day parade, and we were able to incorporate it at the last minute into our book published in 2017 of the history of the parade, is of you playing the tin whistle on the altar um, at St. Coleman's Parish at the end of the St. Patrick's Day Mass. So you're you're there. You're part of the story. Like what a, an amazing event that was that I had been, you know, you know, the story is Danny Chambers called and said, hey, would you be willing to do this? And then the, the, the Bishop Thomas wanted to, to do it. And of course, I, I cannot trump a bishop. Right. I could probably beat him in a race, but I'm not going to, I can't get him in hierarchy. And the night before I was sitting in, in my sister's spare bedroom on Dartmouth in, in Cleveland, and Danny called. He's like, hey, where are you? I'm like, I'm in my sister's house. Do you want to do mass tomorrow? Because the bishop's got the flu. 
Whoa. And <laughs> so there was no notice. There was no notice at all. I was like, so of course I said yes. Went and it was amazing. It was amazing. Right. It, I happened to be the co-chair of the parade that year. And so had a front row seat, Roger, which I would not normally have. And Roger Weiss was the grand marshal. Uh, so it was quite the occasion. But we're very blessed that you're still part of our community, Ryan. And proud that we were able to contribute to your development. I'm going to tear up, possibly. <laughs> oh, there's that song, Ed Sheeran. And he sings about like even when there's there's difficulties of one friend struggles with addiction, one you know, commits suicide, one one's been divorced. But he's mindful. He's like these are the people who raised me, and that's one thing I I I can't let go of. I know where I come from, and I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of the people who who raised me. That big community, because that's where I come. I mean, you know, it, it's easy, you know yourself, I mean, University of Chicago, it's easy to have like the airs of, oh, I am a professor, I'm a priest and better than someone. At the end of the day, I'm a kid from Cleveland who plays the accordion for Irish dancers and gets to pray with others. I mean, that's kind of myself. <laughs> it's not very lofty. We're very proud of you. We're very, Thank very you. proud of you. Thank you very much for sharing My pleasure. your thoughts, your talents. Um, we're very proud of you. Thank you, Margaret. It's so good to be with you today. Mutual. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here's Ryan Dunn's on Tin Whistle playing the song Ah, Surely by Tin Whistle player Mary Bergen. Enjoy. Thanks for tuning in and God bless. Thanks for joining Finding Home, the Irish American Archives Society's podcast series about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Find more on the IAAS website at irisharchives.org. The Irish American Archives Society is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to research, present, and preserve information about the history of the Irish in Cleveland. Thank you for listening.